Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. But I think if you're here today, you're probably at least somewhat probably familiar with this story, right? As a matter of fact, this story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is one of the most well-known stories in the history of the world. I remember hearing this story uh, early on in my life. My family went to a church a lot like this one, except they didn't give out free donuts, but they gave out a Skittle for every Bible verse that I memorized. Hear me, a Skittle, not a bag of Skittles, a single uh, Skittle. And so for context, I would have to memorize the entire book of Jonah to get a whole bag of Skittles, just in case you were curious. But regardless, it was a good church. I learned a lot about Jesus when I was young. It's one of the reasons we care so much about, about our kids' ministry. I remember how important it was for me when I was young. And I was told so many stories about the Bible when I was younger and even growing up. And, and I mean, not to brag, but I played Joseph at the kids' Christmas pageant one year. So, I mean, kind of a big deal. Um, and to be fair, Christmas, Christmas gets a lot of the hype because worldwide Christmas is celebrated much more than Easter is. People who don't even believe in Jesus still celebrate his birthday at Christmas time. But Easter, Easter is the real deal. Easter is the holiday that everyone who has breath in their lungs and calls Jesus their Lord and Savior should be ready for, should be excited about. That is Easter. Because apart from this day, apart from Easter, Christianity doesn't exist. Apart from the day, Christianity doesn't exist. And I think most of us know that, at the very least, maybe understand that idea. We understand that Jesus came and and he died died on a cross, according to the Bible, according to Christian belief and and historical documentation, he conquered death and rose on the third day, Easter. And we get that. Here's what I think we miss, though, is that this has massive implications for, for us, for you and I, for the entire world. And if you've looked at the state of the world today, which I'm pretty sure is impossible to miss, you can recognize that it's, it's a rare day when good news comes on TV. And most days are filled with a lot of tragedy, a lot of heartache. We're consistently and regularly seeing the fall of modern America, a mostly moral society, and the movement of our world into a post-Christian world. The implications of the resurrection of Jesus have always been the same. The implications have always been the same, but now more than ever, there is a world of hurting people who need to hear exactly what Jesus has done for us, exactly what Jesus has done for you. And here's the hard part. I'm no longer convinced that the world my kids are going to grow up in is going to be a better one than I grew up in. And that's, that's a hard reality, right? When I was young, I left my house to drop a note on the counter for mom. She'd be at work, was work all day. Note on the counter, I'm going to go to my friend's house. I'll be home by dinner, right? No problem, no issues, be gone five, six hours. I would go way further than the note allowed my parents to know that I went, right? Go to different places that my parents didn't know that I went to, did different things that my parents didn't know that I did. I did all of those things. And as long as I was home by dinner, I was cool, no problem. There was an acceptance kind of of safety and and security, that most people would choose to do the right thing. I didn't have to worry about strangers at all. 
And that's not the same world that our kids are growing up in today. And to be honest, that's scary. And that's, that's, that's a difficult thing to hear. There was actually a study done where it asked people if they believed their kids were going to live in a better world when they grew up than we currently do. And it was a global study. So they did hundreds of thousands of, of phone calls or whatever it is they did to, to, to countries all over the world. And in America, only 6% of people thought the world their kids would be adults in would be better than the one we're currently living. 6%. And that's a hard stat to kind of believe. But judging by the couple nods that I'm seeing in the audience, you're like, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I'm not confident in the world that we are growing up in. And so that tells us that the state of affairs for us as adults in the world is tragic and that it's sad and it's bleak. And on one hand, that's incredibly disheartening. And that's difficult to hear. But on the other hand, as a Christian, I recognize that while everything else may fall apart, everything else may fall by the wayside, that society will continue to devolve, that people will continue to choose sin over righteousness, that regardless of all that, the tomb was empty 1,990 years ago and will continue to be empty long after I'm gone from here. So the question becomes then, in the face of a world that is bitter, hurting, sometimes spiteful towards Christianity and the cross, why would we continue to come to worship Jesus? Why would we do it? Why do we do it every single week? Well, let's check in Mark. It's in Mark 16 is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bible, physical or digital, you got a phone, take it out. Mark 16. We use NIV here when we're reading along. So we'll get to that in just, uh, just a sec. But while you're turning there, I want to give you a backstory. There's a pretty famous guy in Christian circles by the name of Peter. I'm fond of him for obvious reasons. Um, other than Jesus, Peter is kind of the unannounced leader of the disciples. And I love that Peter was the leader of them because, because God couldn't have picked a more normal guy to fill that role. Like God could have picked like the, the pinnacle, smartest, you know, most eloquent person in the entire world, but he doesn't. He chooses a smelly fisherman who probably has very little, uh, little schooling. And Peter did all sorts of ridiculous things that showed us both Peter's incredible intentions as well as his propensity to fail. Those are two things that are very obvious. I mean, this is the guy who saw Jesus walking on water. Hey, that's Peter. He saw Jesus walking on water and he was like, you know, hey, Jesus, I want to come. I want to come walk on water with you. So he gets out of the boat and he starts walking on water. He's like, oh, this is cool. And he's looking at Jesus and all of a sudden he, he gets worried. He gets scared. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he almost drowns, right? And Jesus gets him, throws him back in the boat. He's the guy when Jesus is about to get arrested. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He thought it was a good idea to try to start a battle with the Roman guard and cuts a guy's ear off only for Jesus to rebuke him and put the ear back on. Right? At one point, Peter even rebukes Jesus. I mean, Scripture is full of all this, but, but he rebukes Jesus, which I know there are a lot of things you can do wrong in life, but rebuking of the, the, the Savior of, of the world probably isn't the best call, right? And so he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus calls him Satan, and is like, hey, get out of my way, Satan. This guy, this failure, he is the leader of the disciples. That's who Jesus, that's who Jesus chose. It's crazy to me. A guy you and I get to look towards when it comes to having faith in Christ. But during Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we would hope for the underdog story of Peter to redeem himself in all of this. But no, no, Peter manages to mess it up one more time. So let's start in verse 1. It will be on the screen as well. It says, when the Sabbath was over, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Most modern translations has, uh, has Mark ending after verse 8. There's some supplemental stuff after verse 8. A lot of people believe it was added to a later manuscript to kind of tie it up into a pretty little bow. So you might have more text after that. But most people think, or a lot of people think, that the original author of the book of Mark, which would have been Peter and Mark, um, ended it after verse 8. The disciples, the ladies, bewildered and confused and afraid. So first off, let's just, let's just take a look at the miraculous things that are, that are going on here. Okay, there's a stone. It doesn't mention it here, but there were soldiers who were guarding Jesus at the time. Most people believe that this stone was between two and 4,000 pounds, one to two tons. Okay, I don't know about you, that's a big stone. I mean, they were even trying to problem solve it on their way there. They're like, hey, we need to anoint Jesus' body. Who's going to roll the stone away? Right, that was the question they had. I pulled out a tree stump yesterday. It was maybe 70 pounds, and I am wrecked from that, right? So two to 4,000 pounds is absolutely, absolutely nuts. And so the ladies, they get there. The stone is rolled away. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, the soldiers are gone. The soldiers, they run away because they saw an angel, and they freaked out. You can see that in other gospel accounts. But so the ladies, they go into the tomb to, to anoint Jesus, and there is a guy who's dressed in white sitting down on the right side. And, of course, they are terrified at this point. Can we just agree that this is the correct emotion that these ladies are having at this point? They walk in expecting to see a dead body. And instead, they see a guy, a young, a young man dressed in white, just casually hanging out in the tomb, right? And they're like, nope, this isn't correct. And so they are terrified at that at that point, but I'm sure they relaxed because he said, don't be alarmed, right? <laughs> it feels like the equivalent of telling somebody to calm down when they're angry. Like, you know, it never works. It just kind of makes things, makes things worse. Intentions are good, but rarely does it work. And so then he tells them exactly, the angel tells them exactly while they're, why they're there and what went down. He says, you're looking for Jesus. He isn't here. The best part of the entire story, why we're here today, he has risen. And we're familiar with this part of the story. And it's a good part of so it's why, like I said, it's why we're here this morning. It's why all of Christianity exists. And this is good news. This is great news. This is the best news you could possibly, possibly have. Why does it matter to us, though? Well, in my study, I was reading, I was, as I was reading through the passage, I just came across a little nugget of things in verse 7. And at first glance, it seems pretty normal. But it says, it says, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. It says, it says, go and tell his disciples and Peter, which is weird. Peter's one of Jesus' disciples, right? This would, be, this would be the equivalent of me saying, hey, go get the brothers and Colin, 
right? That doesn't make any sense, right? And just say, go get the brothers. Why would I waste extra time saying more words that I don't need to say, right? So it specifically says, go tell the disciples and Peter. So a little more backstory for for Peter. A few weeks back, we covered a portion of scripture in Mark that talked about Peter both saying, saying to Jesus that, that he would never, ever leave him, never forsake him, that he would never fall away from Jesus, regardless of what went down, uh, regardless of what went down, he would never fall away. That everybody else would, but not Peter. Great intentions. I'm never going to fall away. Jesus, everybody else may run away. I'm never going to. Great intentions. And then a few hours later, Peter denied Jesus three separate times, just like Jesus told him he was going to do. Here's the hard part. Peter never talked to Jesus again after his betrayal. At least it's not recorded. Some of the last words spoken to Jesus by Peter were that he wouldn't betray him, and then he did exactly the opposite. So Peter at this point, after the death of Jesus, he, he couldn't be in a good spot. Right? This is a guy who just spent the last three years with Jesus, one of his best friends on earth, leading the charge for the rest of the disciples. But Peter was a failure. And his intentions were good. But at the end of the day, this guy was just simply a failure. And Jesus knew that Peter was going to fall. Jesus knew this guy was going to kind of go into self-preservation mode when all of the cards were down on the table. You see, when, when Peter denied Jesus three separate times, Jesus also told him that a rooster was going to crow after the third time. And so the Gospel of Luke actually tells us that Peter denies him a third time. A rooster crows, and in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You know that look of disappointment that only your parents know how to give you? Multiply that by a million. Right? There is nothing that I would want to do less than what just happened, have Lord, the Lord turn and look at Peter as what Jesus said was going to happen comes to fruition. Jesus knew about Peter's failure before it happened. Jesus knew about Peter's failure when it happened. And Jesus knew about Peter's failure after it happened. It's why he said disciples and Peter. Here's the truth about the cross and about Peter. Peter's failure was about as bad as any failure can be. And I don't mean to keep piling onto this guy. Like I feel bad piling onto this poor guy, but it'd be hard to conceive of a way of blowing it worse than Peter did. He had spent almost three years constantly in the presence of Jesus. He had heard Jesus teach. He had seen him perform miracles. He was the inner circle of, of the 12. He had been in the room when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He had seen Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if Jesus ever, ever needed the support of human friends, it was during this dark night of Gethsemane and the events that followed. And Peter failed. Like I said, to make matters worse, Peter knew the last words Jesus heard him speak were words of denial in that moment of need. It is an awful thing to live with the memory that your last words to a loved one were not what you wanted them to be. Peter spent a really dark Saturday with the memory that the final words Jesus heard him speak were words of denial. But here's the good news. By including Peter's example in Scripture, Jesus shows us that there is hope even in our worst moments of failure. Right, some of you may know Christ as your Savior, 
But maybe you've done something awful. You're ashamed to tell anyone. You can't even, you don't even want to bring it to God at this point. You can't face the Lord or his people. But can I just tell you, like, your failure is not worse than Peter's. Those two words, and Peter, show us that there is no failure that can separate us from the risen Savior's love. Even though Peter's failure was as bad as any, Christ's love is always bigger than our failures. Because here's the truth about Christianity. Here's your theology kind of 101 today. Every one of us, according to Scripture, is a sinner in need of a Savior. Romans tells us that. Genesis tells us that. James tells us that. All of the Gospels center around the idea that we are all sinners and needed someone to come intervene for us. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The consequences of our sin is death. Someone has to endure God's wrath in order for forgiveness. That's what scripture tells us. So to make sure that we had a way back to him, we didn't have to die a spiritual death on top of the physical death that we are all going to endure, he sent his son. John 3.16, most famous verse for a reason, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves you enough to die in your place. Jesus wanted Peter to know that regardless of how bad he blew it, his sin was already taken care of, that he knew his name and that he loved him still. That's called grace, unmerited favor. And our human nature kind of grates against this idea of God's grace. We like to think that we kind of got on God's good side because he saw something in us that maybe just a little bit better than other people or if God accepts us kind of according to merit, then we can feel that we're just a notch above maybe others who aren't in the club. But grace humbles us because grace is the only way we can, the only way we can receive grace is when we realize that we simply don't deserve it. Because God's love operates upon the basis of grace. It means that there is hope for every sinner, no matter how great our sin. No failure, no matter how bad, can separate us from the risen Savior's love if we will simply turn to him and believe it. The risen Savior offers eternal life and forgiveness of sins to each and every one of us, no matter how badly you failed God. Each of us needs to personally receive his offer of love and faith. Let me, let me lay it down this way. On New Year's Day, 1929, okay, we'll kind of start to wrap up with this. Uh, Georgia Tech was playing Cal in a football game. It was the Rose Bowl, so you football fans can perk up a little bit. But it was 1929, so most of you weren't alive. But that's a really infamous game, infamous for a reason. There's a guy by the name of Roy Rigels, and uh, Roy recovered a fumble for Cal. And Roy, he took that ball, and he was so excited. He got turned around a little bit, and he started running 65 yards in the wrong direction. Right? You can only imagine, like, being his teammate, I'd be like, I'm going to tackle that dude so much harder than anybody else, right? So his teammate runs up, and he tackles him right before he goes into the end zone. They, 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 they have to end up punting from that point. And on the attempted punt attempt, Georgia Tech, they block the kick, and they score a safety. And at the end of the game, that ultimately, that was the margin of victory for Georgia Tech. But that whole play came in the first half. Right? All of that happened in the, in the first half. And everyone who was watching the game probably had the same question. Like, what is Coach Price going to do with Roy Rigels? 
in the second half specifically. Like, what, what do we do with this guy, right? All the guys, they file off the field. They go into the locker room. They sat down on benches and, and on the floor. But Rigel's, I mean, that's a, that's a real moment. So he goes and he sits into the corner, puts a blanket around his shoulders and just kind of put his face in his hands and cried like a baby. Few moments where it's socially acceptable for men to cry. That's 100% one of them. But usually a coach, if you've been a part of the team, you know coaches usually have a lot to say during halftime. We got to adjust this, we need to change that, you know, whatever it may be. But that day, coach was absolutely quiet. Not a word. Probably part of it trying to decide what he was going to do with Rigel as the guy who almost scored on their own team. And so the timekeeper, he comes in and he announced that there's three minutes left before playing time. And it's usually when everybody would get up and start heading out. And Coach Price looked at the team and he seemed to said, men, the same team who played the first half will start the second half. Everyone got up. They started out except, except Rigel's. He didn't budge. Actually, the coach looked back at him and, and called to him again. And he still, he still didn't didn't move. And so Coach Price, he went over to where Rigel sat and he said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half is going to start the second half. And Rigel's face just tears soaked, looked up and said, Coach, I can't do it. I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in that stadium to save my life. And then Coach Price reached out, put his hand on Rigel's shoulder and said to him, Roy, get up, go back out there. The game is only halfway over. And Rigel's went back and those Georgia Tech men later on got interviewed in this whole thing. And they said they had never seen a man play football in the same way that Roy Rigel's played that second half. My guess is you probably never failed in such a way as Roy Rigel's did. Normally, our failures aren't performed in front of a stadium for thousands of people to be able to see. But each one of us at some time has badly failed God. The Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul actually wrote, it's a, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul, the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament was like, hey, all of us are sinners and I'm the worst one. That dude wrote your Bible. And Peter might argue with Paul about who is the biggest sinner, but neither would argue how incredible God's grace is toward all of us failures. But the angel's words, go tell his disciples and Peter, say to us, the game's only halfway over. The question then becomes, why does this, why does this matter to you? Right, if you haven't connected the dots yet, it's because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And today we celebrate the fact that we have one. And all we have to do is believe in our heart and confess with our lips that he is Lord, like Romans 10 tells us, and we will be saved. That's it. Jesus already did the hard part for us. He paid the penalty that we no longer have to endure. He was beaten, mocked, belittled, hung on a cross to die for our sake. And the beauty of all of this, there's no more of God's wrath that we personally have to endure in order to get to heaven and in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Amen. Easter is joy because we are Peter. And God loves us enough to take us even as we fail. So today we're going to close simply with a prayer. 
And it doesn't matter if you've been to church every single Sunday of your entire life or if you've never set foot in a church before, Jesus is waiting for you to simply respond to the call of his spirit, which is simply to believe in your heart and confess with your lips what Jesus did on your behalf. And you will now decidedly live in submission to him for the rest of your life. Why? Because he died for you. Easter is joy because Jesus is who he says he is. The savior of the world who died on a cross for every single one of us had conquered death on Easter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the greatest story ever told, ever lived. God, that your grace is sufficient for all of us that you sent your son, you sent your son at Christmas to stretch in the skin for this very reason. That he came and he taught and he healed and he got into arguments with religious people. But ultimately he bled and died. And God, thank you most of all that he's not still on that cross, that he's not still in that tomb that his body is gone. He is sitting at the right, your right hand right now. So Father, for those in the room with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if, that's, if this morning you think to yourself, I need to get right with God, that I am a failure, that I have messed up, that I do continue to sin, or you've never once made a profession of faith and said, God, I, I just, I wanna be with you forever and I know that I fall short, and so please be my savior. If that's you in either camp, you can just pray with me in the quietness of your heart. Simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. That I am a failure, that I fall short, but God, that you have come to redeem me, because I be believe that you sent your son to die on a cross and to conquer death. And see, because of all that, I choose to follow you every single day of my life. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.